welcome to Bat Shit, a frank and funny look at living with mental illness. While we'll touch on several illnesses, Bat Shit is focused on those along the spectrum of bipolar disorders. I'm your host, Adam. And I'm your other host, Brad. And we're both bipolar, so strap in and let's see how bad shit we really are. Spoiler alert, pretty damn bad shit. <laughs> this episode's topic, masculinity, part two. Part two. This time we have a very special guest. We have an awesome guest. Her name is Aiden Cox. Hi, Aiden. Hi, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Good to be here. All the way from Belfast in Ireland. There you go. So, guys, we're now um, we're international. International. We're we're but a pretty big deal. That feels like cheating because I am from California. That's no 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 <laughs> no no no. No, and no, let's, no it works. It works. Me, let us take what we can get yeah. here, please. You know we're uh, uh, we're like number twenty five on the mental health charts in Jordan and the Sudan. Really, the yeah. Sudan? Huh. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe Brad's uh, part Sudanese. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, what's awesome about Aiden is she's a cultural anthropologist uh, and a brewer. And a brewer. So um, I know cultural anthropologists is probably more applicative to what we do. With a background in gender studies. Right. But the brewing is kind of awesome yeah. uh, just <laughs> on top of that. So uh, can, can you tell me just for did – you, did you get into brewing first and then later decide, you know what, I guess I'll do cultural anthropology on top of that? Or was it like, you know, oh, my God, I've done so much study into cultural anthropology, I need to drink more, thus the brewing <laughs> – like slipped in after so i actually was into uh, like gender issues anthropology and that kind of stuff before i professionally started brewing i did home brewing back in california when i was at community college um it's a very expensive hobby so like i never had my own setup or anything um but i went to undergrad in lowell massachusetts uh which used to be the carjacking capital of the U.S. at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. I know all about Lowell. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Lowell, Massachusetts. I showed up in the middle of winter uh, with two suitcases, my rainbow flip-flops, and uh, yoga pants. And the East Coast people were not so welcoming to the Californian. But, um, but yeah, I got my first job in brewing uh, like the week I landed there I'd emailed them and everything um and I was the first to my knowledge I was the first woman that they had hired in production on the production side of it's a brew it was a brew pub I worked for um that no longer exists called beer works and um on the production side I think I was the first woman they had hired in like 15 years of existence or something on wow, the production really? side. like women worked as bartenders uh wait staff etc but not in the production side and it was definitely a culture shock for me in terms of working with all men I worked with men who had backgrounds in being in the military dock workers construction uh you know like very traditionally masculine fields that um I had no contact with before at that level and I was also incredibly young I was 21, 22 um, when I started working in that context. And it was overwhelming. Like I definitely dealt with a lot of sexism in that job. Um, but I've continued to like work in the brewing industry as I've done my other, like all my degrees. Uh, so I've worked primarily with men um, for the past 10 years, which has been interesting, you know, as, as a cisgendered woman from California. And I currently live in Belfast, Ireland. Um, 
and I work in brewing now, but I work for my friends who are husband and wife and it's just me and them working. So it's a very different dynamic than previous breweries I worked for. Do you, have you picked up a good Irish accent yet? No, I am so bad. So my dad has an English accent. Um, he's British and I can't do accents and I've tried to like, you know, make fun of my dad when we're drinking and stuff. It's awful. It's terrible. I can't do it. But <laughs> my dad does a really like my dad and my brothers can do a really funny, like make fun of Americans accent. I can't do it though. <laughs> I feel like making fun of Americans kind of like shooting fish in a barrel at this point. Yeah. It's not yeah. really <laughs> fair. Uh... <laughs> Take so, much skill. Yeah. It's not at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that that's awesome that you've now worked in brewing in multiple on mon- multiple continents and like you said it's primarily a, a a masculine masculine occupied field right like yeah. and we kind of had our own me too movement uh, I mean you guys are both in the entertainment industry right like mm-hmm. so you know, during the pandemic, we, social media has been a crazy force for change in a lot of different industries. And we had our own Me Too movement. Um, and that was interesting. Like a lot of guys that I would thought were solid people that I worked with um, were not that nice, as I found yeah. out, you know, like it, it was an interesting time to be a cultural anthropologist in the industry and also to kind of analyze how the industry got to be the way it, it it has been in terms of traditional masculinity and like you know even unpacking that word i'm sure that's something we're going to do during this episode but it got a lot of my friends both male and female who are in the industry and and non-binary discussing all of the norms that we have sure sure well, well let's let's start right there right like <clears throat> the concept of masculinity you're working in what could be considered a typically masculine field. How do you see that manifest in like the men you work with in the way you're treated um, in the field? Like talk about that for a bit. So one of the interesting things about masculinity, we're all going to put our anthropology hats on right now. So if anybody's like, (laughs) if anybody's like, what's anthropology, it's just the study of humans and cultures. It doesn't have a great history in terms of uh, colonialism and stuff, but most modern anthropologists are solid people. Um, But if you put your anthropology hat on and just think about the idea of masculinity, we often associate that with just men, Um, Mm -hmm. but we all participate in these gender norms. So, um, there's a guy who did a great podcast, if anybody's interested, the American Psychological Association hosted him on their podcast, and he is an expert on masculinity. Um, Ronald Levant, I believe is his name. I think he's at Harvard now, but he was in Ohio. Um, he wrote a book called The Tough Standard, and he um, talks about masculine gender norms being synonymous with being male, um, but it's really a gender no- norm or a social norm or a a social construct and what we mean when we say social construct is just something we've made up as a society so um within the western lens and this is applicable in other cultures as well but he kind of defines it as uh, i think there's five things that he defines it as um avoiding all things feminine Hmm. uh restricting expression of emotions with the exception of anger self-reliance um toughness uh and i think under that umbrella he has dominance and um 
like a, a strong focus on sexual connection without the emotional component of that. And then he dis discusses about the shift in this, but a disdain for sexual minority men. So men who are traditional masculinity would have a disdain for men who are gay or bi. Oh, okay. So those are the components of what we would call traditional slash some people would refer to it as toxic masculinity. But one of the interesting things is like, I've, as an anthropologist, I've been trying to unpack, like, do we have a positive version of masculinity? Um, and is it important to have a positive version of masculinity? Or are those traits just simply being a good human? Like, do we need that dichotomy of femininity and masculinity? Um, one of the things that always comes to mind, like, I've spent the last couple of days talking to some of my buddies. I actually was telling Brad, I spoke to my dad for like an hour and a half the other day, and that was super interesting. Um, we haven't had like a explicit conversation about masculinity before and I was really surprised with some of the things my dad said but um I found that younger my friends who are a bit younger so I'll say like 40 like 40s and younger mm -hmm. um a lot of them were like what do you mean like what's important to me about being a man that was one of my questions to them and I was like well I don't know like do you feel like your masculinity is important to you is it important to identify with that and a lot of them were like, no, not really. Like, I want to be a good dad or I want to be a good husband or boyfriend. But like, it, it's just about being a good partner or person. Mm -hmm. And whereas like, my dad did have an answer for like what he thought were masculine traits. And he named them as empathy and compassion um, and caring. And for a little bit of background, my dad grew up, he's working class Englishman from Leicester and his dad was um, a Royal Marine. <laughs> So like a lot of people, like I was really surprised that for him, it was that cut and dry, but he did say there was a shift when he moved away from some of the peers that he had grown up with in England and he had moved to California when he met my mom, um, you know, like 32 years ago or whatever. So, um, you know, masculinity, when we're talking about it and we're sometimes people get frustrated or upset when they hear the phrase toxic masculinity, because it's equating all things that are masculine as toxic, but I think you have to do a little bit more unpacking as to why we have that label. And it, it falls under the umbrella of patriarchy and dominance and things like that. Um, but you certainly can be a man and not be a toxic person. I don't want people to hear the phrase toxic masculinity and just say like, all men are toxic. That's not what feminists or sociologists or anthropologists are trying to say. They're saying we have these set social norms that aren't really helping or serving mm. the men that sometimes are forced to ascribe to them. And, and, you know, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there with like, people will hear the word toxic masculinity and shut down. They stop listening, right? Because a lot of these, what, what you're ostensibly doing is um, you're saying that some people who may identify as masculine, that that's bad but that's not how toxic masculinity works. Being masculine is not bad. There are elements of masculinity which are completely fine and great and awesome. It's when you take these elements that are usually associated with masculinity and they start getting twisted and corrupted and fucked that people have a problem. But again, the minute you say, you know, toxic masculinity, anyone who associates with men will oftentimes have like a guttural emotional reaction, stop, shut down, stop listening and start attacking. And yeah. 
do you think from from your perspective as a cultural anthropologist do you think that people do that because they're insecure in their own masculinity so this is a really interesting thing um, that that researcher I spoke to you guys about, Robert Levant, talks about. Um, I told you about this study when we were talking the other night, Brad. Um, and he talks that he talks about the precarious masculinity or the uh, the threatened manhood. That's an actual thing he kind of studies. Mm. And one of the experiments that he's done repeatedly um, is having groups of men do dividing them into two and having one group of men do a feminizing task such as braiding uh, mannequin hair and putting pink ribbons in them and the other group doing like knots like boy scout knots or sailor knots or whatever and then afterwards they take both of those groups of men and they invite them like hey do you want to just sit quietly in this room or do you want to go punch the shit out of this like punch like kickboxing bag and huge there's a huge difference the men who were in a feminizing task go to punch the punching bag and it's because in front of other men like this is the the you know what they've gathered from doing this over and over again it's their masculinity was somehow questioned by doing this feminizing task now obviously braiding hair is not inherently feminine or assigned to women. I mean, if we look at indigenous cultures, many men grow their hair very long and it's a sign of masculinity. And that's the other thing we have to unpack when we look at this term of masculinity. Um, It's not the same across cultures and it's not the same over time even. If we look at Western culture, high heels used to be for men. Yeah. We We can walk into any museum and look at old timey portraits and there's men in makeup. They're basically in what we would call drag now. They're just vibing, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A nice turned out calf and uh, nice powdered wig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of what we have, what I push against, for me personally, um, and my perspective, it because there's not going to be a universal consensus. I mean, you, I, I don't know what degree Jordan Peterson has, but he has a degree in something, and somebody is allowing him to teach, and he has very different views on masculinity compared to me, <laughs> and. So from my perspective, we have to consider things like class and race and um, time and like time and space in terms of what are identified as masculine behaviors. Um, I think when men in our society, let's say California, um, you know, you can draw, I'm from Orange County. I grew up in Orange County. Um, you guys are both in LA, right? So very close yeah. in proximity. Yeah. So when we are driving around, I was just home for a funeral for the weekend uh, a few weeks ago, and I saw more lifted trunks than I could possibly count, more Trump flags, and all of these assertions of like, don't tread on me, and that you can't really separate that type of masculinity from, you know, American identity like Mm. that is one really really niche specific type of masculinity you'll see the same thing in new hampshire right like studied in the in new hampshire all the time um so there's lots of different things that happen with um identity with cultural expressions of that like if you feel as though you're being threatened as a group um you might feel the need to perform masculinity in a greater sense than if you were just not feeling that threatened or whatever 
Um, and I know you guys don't get political, so I don't want to go too far down that route, but there's definitely. Well, there's definitely a political component to it. Sure. That I think you can't escape. I mean, I, I find it very interesting that the kind of voices who dominate the field as to dictating what is masculine these days, Jordan Peterson's, Ben Shapiro's, are guys who don't uphold the masculine ideals they espouse. You know, Ben Shapiro, for instance, is like four feet tall and his voice sounds like some guy in an 80s movie who got kicked in the nuts. <laughs> it doesn't look like he's ever done a push-up in his life. And you know what? All that's fine. But then he's out there trying to say that we should all be, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, exactly. from like the 1987 movie. And it's like, well, you're not doing it, dude. Yeah, what's going on there, bro? What's going <laughs> I, on there? I would say those men are victims of precarious masculinity and that they mm-hmm. wish to ascribe to this very rigid set of values of masculinity um and you know like that is their choice and i am i'm not a man i don't get to decide what masculinity is or isn't um but the other thing that comes up within um levant's uh research is he talks a lot about violence um and violence against women gun violence all of those things come up and he thinks there's a direct correlation between tra- these tra- traditional masculine norms and forced adherence to them and the subsequent, you know, aftermath of sexual violence, gun violence, et cetera. And I would have to say from what I've read as an anthropologist and sociologist, like I would agree with that. I think there is a relationship. The other thing I push back against is this idea of biological essentialism of some of the traits that we associate as either masculine or feminine. And you guys spoke a little bit about how non-binary people kind of push back against that um, in their own journeys. And I I agree, like the more and more folks feeling comfortable to come out as themselves and stuff like that creates space for these conversations to happen. But also the science just doesn't back up biological essentialism. the idea that women are naturally more emotional, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, isn't backed by science. Uh, when we look, it, it's a byproduct of socialization. So when we look at how we treat little boys, for instance, um, there's been numerous studies done, but little boys are actually more emotive as neonates. And by the time they're two, we've socialized them to be less emotionally expressive than their female counterparts. Um, And this is assuming everybody's cisgendered because little babies can't. Sure, sure, of course. But the way we respond to little boys, even as infants, as a byproduct of our own socialization, is shaping them. So they've done one of the first things I learned about when I took my um, women's studies class in college was... There's the study that they did on repeat for a while. I think it was done in the 70s and the 80s, but they would wrap babies in blue or pink blankets. They would take groups of parents and their newborn babies, and they'd be like, okay, we're going to swap the babies around. Like, obviously, we're going to keep track of whose baby is who, um, but we're going to wrap babies in blue blankets and pink blankets, and your job is to just comfort them for the next couple of hours or whatever the case was. And without fail, there was hardly any exceptions to this, people were more responsive to babies wrapped in pink blankets, regardless of their actual gender or anything, uh, or or biological sex, I should say, um, perceived gender. And they were less responsive to the babies they thought were boys. 
And so this huh. implicit thinking affects how we how we treat our children from the smallest age because we we do socialize boys and girls with different toys and there's a lot of pushback in that and you know with millennials and um, more progressive parents like one of my ex-boyfriends I was talking to him about doing this podcast and we were discussing like how his parents were purposely like he's in his 40s and they purposely gave him Barbies because <laughs> that's what he wanted at that time. And that would have been really unusual, but now that's becoming more and more commonplace sure. um, to allow children to kind of be gender, gender neutral with their toy selections. Um, but biological essentialism of certain emotions, like women are more empathetic or caring, all of that is socialized. Um, and it varies across culture as well. Well, I, I want to actually ask you about that cross-culturally because you've you've mentioned um, you went to school in Lowell, Massachusetts. You grew up in California. You currently live in Belfast. Those are three very different cultures, even though I know that, yes, California and Massachusetts are both in America. As someone who's lived in both places, culturally very different. Yes. Um, what have you experienced, um, let's say now, now that you're overseas, are you, are you seeing similar uh similar traits uh habits um you know as you guys know i'm an adopted person too so there's another layer my first adoptive family was actually mexican-american so okay. um that really shaped my understanding of some gender norms and things like that in the california context um but I actually think there's more cultural similarities that I've observed, and this is anecdotal, this is not like a study I've done or anything, between the East Coast of America in the New England region and Ireland slash England slash... Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Then there is between East Coast and West Coast. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All day. Uh, prior to COVID, I remember getting off the plane in California after being in the Boston area and being like everybody is so fucking happy here what is our problem <laughs> and just like being like what's wrong with me oh my god <laughs> like, and, yep. you know when, when you're the driving culture like i don't know if you've noticed this but like uh where brad where are you from you're from like tennessee or something i'm from like tennessee that, right? originally yeah. okay so you can probably speak to like a whole other area of america but like it is to me it's like almost like different countries in terms of driving culture in california i'm expected to like wave and thank people and stuff like that i tried doing that when i was driving around boston because i had to drive the beer truck and do deliveries yeah people are seeing this as weakness and they're gonna kill me like yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> See, in Tennessee, you don't do that because nobody drives more than 30 miles an hour anywhere. <laughs> Every time I go back, I'm on the, the I was about to say the freeway, but it's, you the, don't it's, have the, interstate. Yeah. it's the interstate. <laughs> and uh, and I'm just constantly like, get the fuck out of my way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think it's it's funny because like, I, like I said, I came from the East Coast and coming to California and I've lived all across the country because I've done theater and and I have never, it was within like a year of leaving the East Coast and having lived in like Ohio and Colorado and Omaha and California. It's, it just, it was like a, a smack in the face to the different cultural um, ideas and norms that exist throughout the country, which I think is so funny because like we have this idea of American nationalism when I'm like, well, but America is so fucking different depending on where you are 
in you know and when you are it's so I, I don't know. I, sorry, I didn't mean to detract completely from your statement, oh, but no, but like that point is very true. So like I live in Belfast, which is a small metropolitan area. Well, it's not small. It's a major metropolitan area for Ireland. Um, and the experience here in this city context is very similar to Lowell, I would say in terms mm. of um, how people interact with each other, but then you go into more rural areas of Ireland, um, which is not that far out of the city, and it's probably more similar to like the Midwest of the U.S. or something like that. Uh, California is an interesting one because we have such a variety of cultures in such a small space um, that it kind of depends on, I feel like, almost what neighborhood you're in and also how you present. Like growing up in foster care, I experienced Southern California very differently than some of my uh you know peers who were in the group home with me who might have been black or latino like they had a very different version of la than i did mm -hmm. and um that that's part of it too and i think when we think about masculinity uh you if you were to talk to a black man in the context of the US, depending on where in the US that man is, he might have a very different experience of masculinity or expectations of him um, as a black man in that context versus his white counterparts. Um, there, there's certainly black sociologists who've written on that as well. Yeah, it's interesting too, especially in relation to mental health. Um, a friend of mine, uh, poet Linda Addison, um, she's black and she talks a lot about how the topic is completely verboten amongst black men. Like as, as much as men in general have a hard time talking about mental health, black men refuse um, from her perspective to talk about it. But apparently that's a, that's a, a common thing. Um, on that note, uh, why, why do you feel that men have such a difficult time talking about mental health in general? Uh, do you feel like it comes back to those five points? I think it comes back to those five points and this attitude that we all have. I think we are all brought up with these biological essentialist views of like, oh, men are just that way. Um, mm. And I'm a woman who dates men. Like I'm not married. I'm currently single dating. Um, and I have had the fortune of mostly dating really kind, wonderful, like in touch with their emotions men. Mo, good for you. <laughs> for the most part, I've had a couple. Wow. There's been there's been like two or three where I'm like, that was you know, I talked to my dad and he's like, why'd you do that? And I was like, I don't know. Um, but you know, all of those like, sorry to any of my ex boyfriends I'm friends with that might listen to this, but all of those men have opened up to me about their mental health at some point or another. Um, so I won't be singling anybody out, but men are more are less likely to go connect with other men sometimes especially at a younger age and um you know when i look at the media that young young boys are encouraged to consume not a lot of that media is about relationship building like you turn on an episode of um i don't know like transformers or 
Ninja Turtles or whatever's targeted towards boys and men, and there's an adventure, there's what we call parallel play. You guys talked about this on your episode of Masculinity. Well, you'll do something together. And I've noticed this with my male friendships. That was a weird adjustment for me. I'm like, how are you feeling today? I'm on my period. What did you do this weekend? Blah, blah, blah. And like, I remember the guys in the brewery were like, what? No, we're not doing this. We're going to like <laughs> stay and drink our coffee in silence and not look at each other. And like, literally, that's one of the aspects of parallel play that happens sometimes is like men sit together and they don't look at each other. They'll just like do something together. They'll do a task together. Yeah. Um, or watch a game together or whatever. And um, what I would say is there, um, men are less encouraged to ask for help because of those traditional masculine norms, that stoicism and self-reliance that society western society tells men they need to adhere to to be a man or feel empowered in that identity and i think it's really crucial we push back against that because ultimately men suffer and it's not just men who are putting that on on men it's also women too i don't know if you guys have seen any of the crazy shit about trad wives no what's a trad wife oh a little bit you know about this? Yeah. I'm so yeah. out of it. Go, tell me, go. Okay, so there's this, like, there's this new trend I've seen on Instagram. I spend a lot of time on social media and there's this new trend of trad wives who are like, oh, they're, it's not just women who are like, oh, I want to be a homemaker. I love spending time at home. These are my skill sets. It's women who are like, this is your job as a woman. Like they want to go back to the 1950s. Oh my, okay. Yeah. And they espouse these ideas of men should be providers and stuff. And not even that extreme, but if we look at modern dating coaches and stuff, I get a lot of that shit on my For Me page on Instagram. And I hate it. And a lot of these people, like these women who are coaching other women are saying, you need to find a man who's going to have a provider mindset. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. And like, the anthropologist in me is just cringing because I'm like, when we only equate men to their vocational ability, it's such a dehumanizing process. Like, even if you're like gung ho, I love capitalism, which is not my attitude, but even if you are there, there's a problem with that because we all, the precarity is, is that we're all going to lose our job at some point or yeah, you're going to yeah. be unable to work or you're going to get injured or like you as a man cannot be stoic and self-reliant you actually need other people like that's right. how evolution has worked do you think the uh the trad wife thing is is maybe a response to kind of the economic hardships we find ourselves in the idea that you know you can have a couple both couples work yeah you're still struggling and having a hard time to get by but if you find that guy who can who can be a provider and you can just hang out and be a be a housewife <laughs> um I think it's more about embodying some bullshit white supremacy, to be honest, because a lot of yeah. the aesthetic that's being pushed in the trad wife sphere is like, I'm like, how is anybody affording this? You guys have like a 40 acre farm and like, right. and I'm like, oh, they have intergenerational wealth because somebody's granddad owned a plantation. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. start unpacking some of these things that we see on social media that no one could actually do if they're a regular person um you see there's a lot of bs behind that yeah. like in terms of like no one is self-made well you, you talk about uh, you, you talk about how like a man is more than just his job right like you cannot just 
confine someone to that because at that point go let's talk about the farm thing you're talking about a plow horse right like a man is only as good as long as he can pull that plow and the second he can't pull that plow anymore what good is he and if that's how you are feel valued or if that's how you view yourself as your intrinsic value you're going to do everything you can to keep pulling that plow regardless of the injuries you might sustain regardless of you know, any sort of uh, trauma that you might be going through, you're just going to put your head down and bo- and that's just going to fester wounds, you know, build up problems and until eventually the plow horse explodes, which I think is how plow horses work. <laughs> um, I've never been on a farm. I mean, that's uh, how my plow horses work. Well, yeah, I mean, you're from Tennessee. Yeah. I've, I assumed you knew about plow horses. Exploding plow horses. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very puritanical kind of mindset. The idea that work is a virtue in and of itself. Mm-hmm. That just if you work and you're a hard worker, that that instantly bestows on you some kind of morality. Um, when, yeah, in reality, that damages your identity, that damages your ability to interact with other people, especially if you're working a job that doesn't require interpersonal rea- uh, interaction. Oh, God forbid. Yeah. Oh, and God. it's, you know, I saw this in Brewing. I, I talked about this um, in an article I wrote where, this is something that is hopefully changing in the brewing industry. Um, But that first job I worked, there was this attitude of like, you know, we don't pay attention to OSHA rules. You lift two kegs at a time and put them in the cold box. And, you know, it's such an arbitrary thing. Like it'll take me 10 more seconds to just lift one at a time. (laughs) But there's this performance that I find that men do almost in front of other men um but i bought into it as well like i participated in that and i was like oh well i'm not i'm not good at my job if i don't also do this thing that's being asked of me Um, and there's some professions where yeah like you need to have a certain level of physical strength in order to do your job like if you're a firefighter you need to be able to like carry a person out of a building but there are also you know women who can do that so it's it's not just a gendered thing Enjoying Batshit? Please like, subscribe, and share it on social media. If you have someone you think may need to hear it, we encourage you to share it with them and to start your own conversation about mental health. Hey friends, Brad and I started Batshit because we needed someone to talk to about our bipolar. So when looking for a sponsor, BetterHelp was the obvious choice. BetterHelp provides access to therapists via text, via Zoom, via email, via phone call, 24 hours, 7 days a week. I don't need to tell anyone how broken the American healthcare system is, especially when it comes to mental illness. But the beautiful thing about BetterHelp is that they'll work with you. Go to www.betterhelp.com backslash batshit. You'll get 10% off for the first month and you'll get someone to talk to right now. If you need to talk to someone, do it. Please. We love you. There's a lot of women who do powerlifting. Yeah, and there are. Yeah, there so, are. like it's I don't I don't have this vision of powerlifting as like this to- toxic masculine sport at all, just because like I, you know, I see women on Instagram and stuff and like that's their that's their thing. They're really- as a sport, it's definitely not like I, I see I I go to a powerlifting gym. It's run by uh, the world bench press champion and um, it's a very uh, supportive environment. Um, like there's, there's a, a healthy competitive element, but people aren't like, they don't look down at anyone for not being as strong as them. It's all about like, are you improving your numbers? 
hey, you're stronger than you were last week, and everybody gathers around and applauds you. Um, I was just saying, as far as the performative aspect, I find myself when I get out of that being like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to assert my alpha dominance around here by being the strongest dude. <laughs> but isn't that interesting, though, because you were just talking about how like your 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 gym is run by the bench press champion of the world, like people yeah. who are professionals at this thing, which is attributed to like a male, you know, a, a masculine attribute strength. Right. So when you take it in like a professional setting and you have people who really understand what it is, how it works, how to manipulate it, how to improve it, it doesn't have to be about being a man or a woman or however you identify. It's more about the task itself. And, you know, as opposed to uh, a layman who is just, you know, being strong, right? Like, I feel like culturally it's almost like an ignorance element, right? Like once you know enough about something like, for instance, powerlifting, you understand men can do it, women can do it, whatever. But if you don't know shit about lifting anything, you just assume that the guy who's bigger is going to be able to do it better. And therefore, that's his job. What's super interesting about that point is um, one of my friends, she is a powerlifter and she's beautiful. She's like, also could be a model and stuff. She's an Instagram influencer. And um, she is very traditionally feminine, look, feminine looking, cisgendered femininity. Um, and she is probably about my build. Um, and we were talking about this because I brew beer, so I have to lift a lot at work. And I am stronger than probably the average person on the street, not necessarily powerlifting strong, but like I can lift heavy stuff. Sure. And she obviously can lift even more than I can. And we were talking about this, about how constantly men underestimate her strength in normal gyms, but they never do that in powerlifting gyms because these men right. understand like, oh, training, we're, you know, we're looking at the the skill of this, the athleticism of this. They don't have a gendered norm. And um, I always found that so interesting uh, when, you know, random or there's been a few times for me, for instance, where I'll be moving something heavy in a brewery and we'll have uh, in Boston there and Lowell, there used to be uh, groups of guests coming in to do tours and stuff. And more than once I'd be moving something and a guy would come in and try to pick up the thing I was lifting and I would just let him like drop it on the floor because he couldn't lift it. But he assumed. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. What I, what I find out interesting about the, what Melissa told me about powerlifting was that men in powerlifting gyms never assume that she can't do it because yep. they're trained yeah. you know, yeah. athletes. Whereas in normal gym culture, it's so like bro driven. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. Here, I'll it... tell you a funny performative uh, story for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a uh, recent guest we had on Jessica Wall, uh, she's also a, uh, an artist. And she had these big like rolls of flooring she was going to put down uh, over her hardwood floor to catch paint. And uh, she was like, can you come over and help me carry these? They're, they're pretty heavy. And I was like, yeah. And it's definitely something two people need to carry. Like it's incredibly long and stupidly heavy. It was like 100 <laughs> degrees out. And I like stood one up on its end and I was like, she was like, well, let me grab the other. It's like, no, 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 I can get it. I can get it. I like bear hugged it and like struggled it up <laughs> under my shoulder. And I was like, oh, it felt like my knees were going to explode. Got inside of just like pouring sweat. And, uh, but then it, but you've already committed. So you've got to keep right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I, got to, I got to. But like three feet into it, I was like, two people really need to be doing this. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I, I put it down and, and she was like, you want to take a break? I was like, no, no, let's get the other one. <laughs> and what is it about that? Like, I find myself doing that where I'm like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. Like, and I'll struggle for like 30 minutes before I ask for help. And I'm like, oh, I'm picking up some like toxic masculine stuff for being yeah. annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally, I mean, you know, that's, these are kind of funny examples of it, but I mean, that's what it comes back to is men refuse to get any help for anything. Oh, because needing help is weakness, yeah. right? You can't be weak. It's the self-reliance thing yeah. that you said is one of the five. I had an ex-boyfriend glue his eye shut with a hot glue gun at work. Oh. And I had to drive him to the doctor. He was like, no, no, no. And I've got a story from almost every ex-boyfriend where I'm like, you need to go to the doctor. And I have to like drag them to the doctor. And the doctor's like, it's a good thing you came to the doctor. And I'm like... What the Could, heck? Wait a minute. What, what job were you doing that he was using a hot glue gun and touching his eye? So, no, in like in breweries, we do a lot of the packaging and stuff in house. Um, oh, okay. And so he had glue, we were gluing boxes shut. You know, those mix packs of beer that you get at your mm -hmm. local off license or whatever? Um, or like, sorry, I'm using like Belfast vernacular in your local liquor store. Um, or a packy if you're back east. Yeah, that term always like packy. didn't sit right with yeah. me. It's a packy, a package store, packy. Yeah, uh, but uh, so the 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 glue guns we use to seal those mix packs are like the industrial strength. They're not like your local Michaels or Joanne Crafts glue right. guns. They're like industrial strength glue guns. And one of them dropped to the floor and it just shot up and like glued his eye shut. Um, <laughs> And he was in like so much pain. And I was like, dude, I've got to take you to the doctor. Like, we've, we've got to go. I'm going to drive you. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'll get in the car. We're going to the doctor. But like, I don't mind telling that story because that was one of the not nice boyfriends I had. But <laughs> I, all of the guys I've dated, there's always been some time where I'm like, you should go get help for that or get that looked at. And like, sometimes it's mental health stuff. And it's like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. And I'm like, do you got it though? Do you got it, bro? I don't know if you do. I, I love that story um, because when you were like, my boyfriend glued his eye shut with a hot glue gun, I immediately went to like the Joanne Fabrics, Michaels, like you guys were making something out of pipe cleaners at work, I guess, on break. And I was just like, I, this sounds amazing. It's a theater kid in you. You're just it's like, there's crafting, right? There must have been crafting something. Be crafting going. Putting sequins on something. I don't know. That's how it works. Uh but yeah, yeah, like, and I've I've seen that at work repeatedly, where like, uh, you know, we'll get injured or burned or something like that, and we'll all just decide like, oh, we're gonna keep working throughout the day, where like a normal person would probably be like, oh, maybe we should uh, go to the doctor and get that checked out. Yeah, yeah, I think part of that is the, and maybe this ties into the the stoicism uh, of it is the ability to endure pain. Sure. And suffering is considered a masculine trait. There's a quote I wrote down for our podcast, you guys. Ooh, I love when people do research. Go ahead. Um, so one of my favorite books on masculinity is actually written by a black woman named Bell Hooks. Um, and she talks about, I think the title of the book is like men, masculinity and the power, the will to change or something like that. But uh, the quote that I took from it, I think encapsulates what I am concerned about in terms of men in Western culture and their mental health. 
Um, and she says, the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation. They kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. So this Ooh. idea of that's the first, the first victim of patriarchy is actually men. And it's so heartbreaking. Like when I think of, you know, I have nephews, I, I've worked with kids before and these precious little boys, like they're being told that they have to dehumanize themselves by cutting off access to these emotions, like pain, like sadness or anything that's not anger really. And by society, like that's one of the things as a parent that gets me is a lot of that's beyond your control because- All right. I'm, you know, we've been very cognizant of how we raise our children in those regards. And yesterday or two days ago, my kids are playing some video game online with a friend of theirs. And they've got their friend on the phone. And my seven-year-old, the friend got upset about something. My seven-year-old goes, don't be a pussy. Ooh. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Ooh. Hold on. Where the... <laughs> Fuck. Did you hear that language? Yeah. I say fuck a lot. If he said fuck, I'd understand it. Um, but <laughs> Don't I be like, a fuck. <laughs> first off, where did you hear that? Second, uh, let's have a talk about what that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's definitely not a concept we've introduced at home. It's peers. Yeah. No matter how progressive you are as a parent. And I hear it in like one of, I have a friend who's like focusing on gaming culture for her PhD. Oh, God, and, I feel uh, terrible for her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, she's like, she's really into video games and like knows a lot about it and stuff. But I've been reading stuff on the side just so I can like stay abreast of what she's doing. And um, it's, you know, the language that young, predominantly boys are being exposed to in these spaces. Like they'll talk about like trigger warning for anybody, but like they'll talk about like, I'm going to rape you or whatever in the game. Like, and it's just the parents may not even be teaching that, but there's the social peer pressure to conform to this really violent rhetoric. Even if like, you can ask a 10 year old, what does that mean to, to rape someone? Do you know what that means? And they'll be like, huh? No. Like they right. just equate it with dominance. Yeah. And that's what it is, unfortunately. Like, but it's unpacking all of that. And like you just said, he, your, your kid didn't get it from you, but someone has said that around. Yeah, and we've locked down all their, their video games. They can't, you know, play games with random people online who might say shit like that. So they're picking that up at school, you know. It, 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 it's horrible to think about how much people that you don't want to be influencing your children uh, get to influence your children. Yeah. Like, that's, that's heartbreaking. I am terrified and... God, I hope this never happens. But just thinking of those terms, like the things that they'll hear at school and mm. repeat, I am terrified of the day one of them says the N word, and I have to be like, "All right, all right, oh god, set the fuck down." <clears throat> oh god, damn it. <laughs> well, and like one of the things that is getting better, I think, with our generation of parenting and stuff. I'm going to lump myself in with you guys because I have friends with kids, and we talk about this stuff. Um, the one of the interesting things is like parents now are getting more comfortable having proactive conversations, um, not just about like language around masculinity and stuff, but uh, about relationship building in ways that, you know, I, 
I talk to my male peers and I'll be like, do your parents ever have like a sex talk or relationship talk with you? And across cultures, very often it's no. Like there was no explicit conversation. It was just like, use a condom. Right. Uh, Everything I knew about sex, I learned on the school bus. Or (laughs) pornography. Like pornography. A lot of, and, and girls too, um, learn their first understandings of sexuality are coming from pornography without the context. Like I'm a very sex positive person and I support sex workers. Um, but we have a very complicated industry with pornography, right? There's ethical spaces where people are getting paid and valued and et cetera. And then there's unethical ways in which it's being produced. Right. And, um, there's also these kids are getting no context for this is a performance and you don't have the frontal lobe development to understand what's happening here or that this is and a some of the niches, genre. Yeah. Some of the subgenres like the abuse porn or uh, I, I find disturbing the, uh, the very popular subgenre of uh, stepdad and stepdaughter. Oh yeah. Like in, yeah. Or ancestral stuff. I don't. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's so pervasive and we all like to think we're not influenced by passive consumption of that stuff, but we, we are. And when young children are getting that um, at really vulnerable ages through teenagehood and stuff, it it's going to shape your understanding of sexual expressions and stuff like that in really unhelpful way, um, helpful ways. And fortunately, I think there's been, especially in places like, you know, where we're from California, parents are getting more comfortable being like, hey, you might come across some stuff on the internet as you get older. And this is, you know, even like spaces like Twitter, where you might just be scrolling, like I don't consume any explicit content on Twitter, but some stuff pops up and I'm like, I'm on a public bus. <laughs> like what, yeah. why, why is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, she's got a great butt, but why is this on the, like there's somebody's yeah. grandma next to me on this bus. Well, and that kind of ties back into what you were saying, too, about um, masculinity being defined uh, with uh, sexual conquest minus the emotional components. Yes. And I think um, there's been a lot of feminist analysis of this. Um, There are certainly sociologists and feminists who are like, nope, there's no ethical production of porn. As a historian, I, I disagree. There's always been images of erotic content um, throughout the ages. Uh, But I would say that, yeah, the messaging that a lot of young boys and young girls get about women is conquest. Like the goal is to get as many notches on your belt as you can. Um, And women effectively, even if you're not committing sexual assaults, the, the disposability of women is something that I think young boys are taught from quite a young age and I've had in this this impacts women as well I've had numerous conversations with women you know at my age and older like in their 30s and 40s for like for the first 10 years of my marriage I didn't think I could have an orgasm because I just you know I I thought sex was for the man that part of that is purity culture I mean like if you grew up Catholic or Mormon or whatever like you were told that sex is for the men in your life and men were also told that and so it's that that does a disservice to everybody i mean well yeah and i mean that that can go back to what you were speaking to earlier too about like 
you you were talking about how like a, a what do they call the trad wives something wives trad trad wives about talking about how like um you, this is a man's value right a man's value as being a provider you know how many women over the years must have been told that like your value is as a i don't know a sexual partner a a a, a you know a, a uh, caretaker you know what i mean it's that it's that same idea of like twisting the relationship or twisting what should be a relationship into a a uh, commerce type of reaction uh interaction it's a transactional relationship transactional. that was the word I was looking at. that's what patriarchy values and that's what what we'll refer to as toxic masculinity values about male female relationships and um you find men who are like I have a lot of male friends um, just because of my job and over the years, but there, there's definitely men that I've spoken to who don't have platonic relationships with women. Um, and, you know, like there's even, there, there's this attitude that I, I think is hopefully changing, but I've watched so many you know how they talk about like gay parents being groomers and stuff? This is like a big discussion. In, like, oh, oh, they're grooming right their now. children. Yep. Okay. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard like straight boomer parents be like, oh, he's going to break all the girls' hearts someday, or they're overly sexualizing like a young girl in a crop top who's like six. And I'm like, she's six. She's yeah. an infant. <laughs> like, um, and that that messaging or like they shame little boys for being friends with girls i remember that happening when i was a kid um there was a kid in our class who was way more comfortable like hanging out with us and like being on the swings instead of playing basketball or whatever and he just happened to like be friends with most of the girls in the class and i remember he was bullied mercilessly by the boys for being gay and i don't even think we knew what gay was in an explicit sense right. but he was he was bullied by other boys for being too feminine. And this is something you watch adult men do to other men. Like you just said, uh, stop being a pussy <laughs> came from a child. Yeah. But I've heard grown men say that to other men about the most inane shit. Like, oh, I'm going to use a, a an oven mitt to pick up this thing on the grill. like, And then oh, some yeah. other guy would call him gay. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't want to get a third degree burn? <laughs> oh man! Wuss. When I was in my when I, I was in my early twenties, uh, my group of friends. Anytime one of us like complained about something, uh, another one would go, "Oh, it's your vagina hurting today?" Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I rubbed some. I I uh, did I did a NJB, which is like basketball when I was a kid, and I played football and like I. <laughs> I remember I had a coach. I can't remember which coach it was, but I was the only girl on on the team or something that day. And he said to one of the boys that to rub some Vagisil on it or something. And we were <laughs> kids. And I remember being like, what's that? <laughs> like, And so this messaging, men do it to each other as full-grown adults. And then boys watch that happen and think, oh, that's what I need to emulate. And right. even now... Um, that researcher I mentioned earlier, he said, he asked, he talks to a lot of dads and even the most progressive dads, their attitude is my job as a father is to make a, a man out of my son. And, you know, unpacking, what does that yeah, mean? What's that what does that mean though? What does like, that mean? Yeah. Being a man. I mean, that's so, 
It, yeah, it's it's such a minefield for a parent. I talk about that a lot is, you know, trying to bestow what I see as positive masculine traits on my kids without them getting all the other shit. But then, like you said, they're going to pick that up anyway. Right. And you also have to allow them to protect themselves because they're going out into a world that is patriarchal and yeah. does. And as, as much as you want to be progressive and, and create these ideals, are you setting your kid up to be bullied because of them? Right. And no. you know what, like, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is other than like constant communication or like, I know some parents who have um, little boys who maybe like wearing dresses or something like that. They have the home as a safe space where they can do that if they're not comfortable doing it outside. Like the most important thing is like, just don't be your kid's first bully. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, luck with that. yeah. My, uh, my seven-year-old uh, has gotten into Barbie's. But he also uh, uh, punches hard enough that he beats up his 11-year-old brother and, like, literally takes shit from no one. This kid's been to the emergency room, like, three or four times. So I'm like, you know what, man? Like, that's fine. Like, play with what you want. Because any kid at school says something, like, you're okay. The next okay. evil Knievel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I could, I, I could see some other kid, like, trying to make fun of him for playing with Barbies and him just headbutt him. <laughs> you know what's interesting? When we're talking about, like, men's mental health, uh, you guys, I don't know if you talked about this, but I was interested in your perspective because something my dad mentioned to me when I asked him about growing up is he said, you know, I never saw my dad cry except for one time the IRA bombed some barracks um, near Deal Beach and he saw his dad cry. And that's the only time he saw his dad cry. And um, like I've watched my dad cry watching Frozen. That's his favorite Aww, movie. Nice. Um, <laughs> but you know, like in a lot of ways, my dad does embody traditional masculinity and not in a toxic way, but like he sees his role as to be protective. And, you know, like he got mad once because a guy showed up to our house and I was like 22 or something. Like you don't want some guy you're on a first date with to meet your parents yet. And this guy like honked the horn out front and texted me instead of like coming to the door. And my dad was like, no, you're not going. <laughs> I mean, anyone who honks to pick someone up, I don't care if it's on a date or otherwise, deserves a kick in the head. I don't know. This is rude. But like, you know, so my dad does have that idea of like being protective and stuff. And I have three brothers and a sister. And he he spoke about like, I never saw my dad cry. Um, he described all these really good things about being masculine. Um, but then he said to me, he's like, I did have a different a set of fears when your sister was born. So I was adopted when I was 15. So my younger sister was actually like the first girl in terms of the baby stuff. Um, and he felt more concerned because he knew how bad men were to women and stuff. And they're a different set of worries, I guess. But like, did you guys have, I know Brad, you talked about in one of the podcasts, like your dad wasn't around very much. No, I was uh, raised by my grandparents, but my grandfather, I never saw him cry um no they were they were kind of gutted by my mother dying and they you know that was that depression was on them until the day they died and he dealt with it with anger yeah you know um, so the only emotion you really saw from him was would that have just been being angry and yeah yeah it's you know it's kind of what you said I, again those five points like i grew up learning that was the only emotion that men were allowed to experience was anger. That's the only masculine emotion. Um, and even now, you know, it's, 
I'm, I'm not comfortable crying in front of other men. The interesting thing is, though, that when I have cried in front of other men, I, have, I get more sympathy and empathy from men. Uh, I've had female friends that I've cried in front of, and they represent, like, their take on it is very toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like, they get very uncomfortable in the idea of, like, you shouldn't be doing this. You're supposed to be strong and stoic. Mm-hmm. I think as a whole, we're uncomfortable with men's emotions other than anger. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And that's kind of sad also because, like you were talking about, it it can represent as violence so much and violence toward women. And yet the way that the patriarchy forces women to deal with masculinity, they're still more comfortable with men's anger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have definitely, I've definitely witnessed, um, not in my personal circle, but, you know, men being abused by women that they're in relationships with and they don't have access to feeling, I mean, they do have access, but they, they don't want to identify as being abused by a female partner or something like that. And, um, you know, so I think women, if they're bad or abusive people can also weaponize that and harm men further. That's definitely a thing that happens. Yeah. I mean, you look, we have so much language just implicit around the idea of masculinity and destroying masculinity. You know, the, the word, as you were describing that, that popped in my head is emasculated. There's not an equivalent of that for femininity in the English No, language. I I think women, when we are uh, told we're not good women and stuff, we're accused of being too masculine. That certainly happened has happened to me. Um, or you're labeled, one of the insults that hopefully is dying out is you get labeled as a lesbian. Um, and I'm no, like, that's not no, really no. insulting to be accused of being a lesbian. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, the, it, it, the, anything that's not feminine in tr- a traditional sense or whatever is, you know, we, if you would deviate from your assigned gender by whoever's doing the abusing, whether it's social structurally or, um, interpersonally like you're usually just accused of being the opposite gender i find in some way shape or form Um, gay men deal with that constantly by men like oh man the number of uh men's you know they uh what's his name the guy i keep talking about who did all that research uh ronald levant uh he had a bunch of men write their secrets on a thing he shuffled them up and then he started reading them and he said it was heartbreaking he said i asked these men to write their deepest secrets that they never told anybody and he said some of the most like common ones were oh i had a crush on another boy and that just broke my heart like 50 40 year old men like feeling shame that far along in life over just a normal human emotion you know like the way we treat by men is like not valid is really unfortunate yeah we have such a tendency to put everything into a box instead of looking at it as a spectrum right right everything has to be very black and white there's no grays yeah right and even like some of the discussions you guys have had about bipolar disorder um has been really illuminating for me um i my i have had a few friends who've had 
pretty serious mental health issues and stuff over the years. And I grew up in foster care. So I was exposed to a lot of different things um, kind of early on. And, you know, there's a spectrum of symptoms that people can experience with things like bipolar and depression and uh, giving people access to be somewhere on a spectrum rather than, oh, you're only always going to be experiencing this or only experiencing this, um, I think is really important. Yeah, we were talking about that recently on an episode. We had a, a therapist, Rebecca Stevens, on, and um, the idea that the DSM-5 has a very narrow classification of symptoms that qualify you for being bipolar, but the actual list of symptoms that you, you can experience is huge and yeah. varied. Um, um, I was going to ask you guys about that, too. How do you think, because honestly, your podcast is really refreshing to have two men who are supporting each other. I think that's more and more common for men to talk about this stuff with each other, but to do so publicly is really healing and awesome, um, even for me as a woman. Uh, but how do you think, like, for yourselves, your journeys with mental health and masculinity have intersected? Like, did it take you longer to get help, do you think, because of being a man? Or how is it? Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I, I think not only internally, um, it, it was a long time until I accepted that I needed to, to get help. And basically, my life had to implode uh, for that to happen. But so like after I started the podcast, for instance, my high school girlfriend wrote me uh, and uh, was basically like, yeah, I always thought you had something. And I was like, why did you never say anything? And then I started talking to friends, my friend Charlie, I, I had talked to, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we always knew, you know, I always figured you were, you know, bipolar or something. And I was like, why the fuck did nobody say this to me? Right. Because people don't talk to men about their mental health. They either, they either dismissed it as something else, or even if they thought that I did have an issue, no one ever brought it up to me. Mm. And I think you get rid of all these things. I think I could have been diagnosed 20 years earlier. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, it, it was also a matter of like acknowledging that it's a problem, like that, it, that it's an actual illness, that it's not just something that's just life. That's just, this is how you're supposed to feel. This is how you're supposed to react and, you know, the, these are the emotions that are supposed to be surging through your system. Um, like, this is just something you're going to have to deal with, so deal with it. Like, don't ask for help with dealing with it, because everyone else must be going through the exact same thing. So if you were to be the one who stepped forward and said, hey, I need help, you know, again, going back to our discussions of admitting weakness, right? It's like, the yeah. It would... Well, and the idea that, you know, we we accept a lot of bad behavior from men in society mm -hmm. first off that's the other thing i was gonna say yeah well so my father my biological father i think he was also bipolar but the way everybody brushed it off like everybody in his family after he went to prison you know would talk about it bobby was just wild he was just wild you know or he just had anger issues is something i hear a lot mm -hmm. about yeah. older men yeah and you just kind of brush it off as in, whereas a woman exhibiting those same traits, you'll be quicker, I think, to say she has an issue and probably needs help. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's the duality of that too, where we, sometimes we pathologize women for having very normal reactions to very bad man behavior. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, because I think psychotherapy, I, 
my history brain could be wrong in this, but I think it was kind of pushed forward by Freud in order to address the hysteria of women, you know, like <laughs> crank out four babies, have zero orgasms in 20 years. Like, of course she's crazy. Oh, like, she's, yeah. I get mental. I don't need to come on. That's a, uh, do you guys know that's where the vibrator uh, came from? What, really? Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, psychological treatment for women in, what, like huh. the 20s, 1920s or something like that? Like, huh. you used to have to plug them into the wall. <laughs> that's, that's fun. You know, like, there, that's interesting. You just brought up accepting a lot of poor behavior from men and just excusing it as, like, oh, he's just a man. He's, he doesn't handle this kind of thing well. Um, there's a guy named Greg... Matos, I think. Uh, he's a, he's actually a military psychologist and a family psychologist, but he um, he wrote this article that came out in 2022 and it was all over the internet and it was like the rise of single lonely men. Um, and he was talking about how, if, I think he mentioned the increase of gray divorces, so women leaving their husbands and stuff. Um, but he was also talking about dating apps and how men in the U.S. were really, this was specific to the U.S., really struggling because women ages 20 to 45 have higher expectations now of emotional communication um, and shared values and stuff. And this goes back to like masculinity almost being for other men sometimes because uh, a lot of men talked about like, oh, well, I need to look this way or I need to have this kind of job in order to do well on these dating apps. And the research was showing that women had these characteristics of emotional availability, good communication and shared values as being the most important things. So like the, and he was, the, the whole article just did the rounds and he was saying, you know, this needs to change if these men want to be partnered because there's just less tolerance for this kind of behavior that would have existed in the past. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Aiden, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and talking with us today about toxic masculinity and your experiences with it. And uh, it's been a lot of fun and really informative. Um, yeah. We hope you're going to, yeah, we hope we're going to come back and talk to us about more stuff um, because, like, I know you and Brad have talked about it offline, but like growing up in the foster care system, you know, living now in Europe. Uh, experiencing like the Belfast masculinity versus the American masculinity. Like there's so many more things that I would love to, we would love to speak with you about. Yeah, um, for sure. We can uh, open the adoption foster care minefield. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, it's going to be a breeze, right? It's going to be like, it's not going to be like a 17 part <laughs> episode or anything like that. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, everyone who's listening, thank you so much. Uh, Aiden, if you could do me a favor, actually, uh, after we get off this, and email me um, like some of the uh, uh, the studies that you may may have mentioned, or some of the the researchers, I'd love to share some of them in the um, uh, in the bio of the episode that we're going to post. Yeah, um, absolutely. Most of the things I listed are from a specific podcast, so I'll just link great. that over to you. Oh, okay. You yeah, want us to link. promote another podcast? <laughs> All right. It's the American Psychological Association. I'm sure there's some overlap with. You know what? This has all been a long con. This is just, she's got another podcast. This is just her promoting her own podcast. I knew it. I knew it. No, uh, definitely. Yeah, please send me that podcast information. We can put her up there. Um, everyone who's listening, um, if you're a man, don't be toxic. Uh, if you're a woman, don't allow a man to be toxic. Just and if you are somebody in your life, you even remotely consider 
needing help, get it. Yeah, get it. Talk to somebody. There's, there's go to the many... doctor. Yeah, just yes. go to the doctor. Just go to the doctor and tell him how you're feeling. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that, that feels, actually, person. that feels bad saying that in an American context and even in a UK context because access to mental health services is shit. So, uh, you know, true. if you can yeah. go to the doctor, if you have right. access. Well, the, the, talk to your partner. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family. Just talk to someone. Please do not think that you have to suffer in silence. That's That's not... That's not how it works. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. And remember, to end on a down note, yeah. men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. Whee! Uh, thank you for listening. Keep fighting. Know that you're seen and that you're loved. Take care of yourselves.